Blog Talk Radio. family. Thanks for listening to Eastern Airlines Radio. My name is Neil Holland, the producer of the show, and we have a great show for you tonight. All listeners around the world, we say welcome. And here's some breaking news. Chuck, what is our breaking news for tonight? Well, Neil, we sure do, and it's big news. Captives at Singapore Airlines, Emirates, Stars, among others, will have their eyes cast to skies this spring when Boeing is expected to fly one of its new 777X planes for the first time. The 777-9, the first of the X family to be developed, will have the biggest jet engines ever seen, attached to the longest wings of any aircraft ever made by the Seattle-based manufacturer. 777X has been said to be the results of a very best of the existing 777 planes as favored by the likes of British Airways and the game-changing 787 Dreamliner, which has been praised as one of the most technologically advanced aircraft in history and garnishes platitudes from passengers from BA and Norwegian and Virgin Atlantic alike. It's an absolute peach, says the Emirates President Tim Clark of the aircraft. Dubai Airlines has striked its staked its future on the 777X, ordering 150, the largest single firm order in history. It is a step change in the aircraft design and a step change in propulsion. We are very happy that we've got what we wanted, he told the Australian Aviation. 777-9, the smaller sibling, and the Dash 8 will follow. As listed, the $426 million will most likely sell, considering the topic, typical bulk airline discount for around $200 million, making Boeing's most expensive airplane in the world, and it's one of the biggest discounts I have ever heard of. Jim?
from the beautiful West Palm Beach area where the weather today is around 40, 45 degrees. Uh, better than the snow, you all are getting up north. Welcome and thank you for listening and calling the show. You have truly made us the radio voice of Eastern Airlines. In fact, we can now say we become Eastern Airlines International Radio Show. We'd love to hear your comments and share your memories with radio listeners from around the world during this broadcast. If you haven't called the show before, all you need to do is to call 213-816-1611 and just say hello to talk with us on the air live. We can identify many countries around the world to listen in with our Blog Talk radio application. Isn't it great that we can keep the Eastern legacy going out, not only to the Eastern family, but to listeners from many different countries around the world? That's what we try to do every week on the EAL radio show. Won't you join us by adding your voice to these broadcasts? We'd love to have you. Our thanks also to those who choose to listen by computer using the radio icon on our homepage at www.ealradioshow.com or perhaps by signing in at the site of our provider, Blog Talk Radio at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie. Should you wish to talk during our live broadcast, feel free to use our call-in number, 213-816-1611 at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, most every Monday evening. Let me repeat that number so you can write it down for your Monday night visit. And by the way, tell your friends about us. That number is 213-816-1611. And don't forget you can listen to any of our 399 Monday night broadcasts and the 75-plus Thursday broadcasts by simply going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie and scrolling down to the archive of broadcasts. Each episode is briefly described. Nearly 500 episodes now. Wow! Our lines are always open for calls, and if you choose not to participate and talk live with our host, we ask you to please mute your phone, as our producer does not have the capability of filtering out background noises. Neil? Can you check your screen and tell us who our hosts are for tonight's episode? Yes, Jim, thanks a lot. And thanks to all of our hosts. They're scattered all around the East Coast primarily. And every once in a while we'll get one to stray out to uh, Colorado. That's uh, Bill Joseph. But uh, Mike, up there in Long Island, what's going on besides weather? Oh, it's a balmy right now, 11 degrees and windy. <laughs> a little on the chilly that's, side. That's not balmy. <laughs> George, would you agree to that? 
George yeah, Jen? except uh, where I am, I think it's even a little bit colder, and it's certainly a lot windier. So uh, I'm hoping that the wind dies down by, you know, very shortly. Well, among all of our hosts, you three, including Shay, who's up next, are our three snowmen. So, Shay, <laughs> uh, in New Jersey, is there much difference there? Uh no, it's windy. It was six degrees this morning, and uh, I have to go jump the battery on my wife's car after the show. Oh. Uh, so I'll be wearing, uh, you know, whale blubber if I can find it, something, because yeah. <laughs> it's going to be awfully cold. I used to be in Pittsburgh for a while with an airline there after Eastern went down, and I'll never forget it was uh, 25 degrees, and I, I think that must have been below, but I couldn't get my key in the door lock. Did this ever happen to you guys up there? Oh, yeah. Occasionally, yeah. When we yeah. had keys yeah. to door locks, uh, car yeah. door locks. <laughs> it was amazing. I couldn't get in my car. Uh, okay, well, let's go down to sunny south and uh, – uh, not sunny, but still chilly. Uh, Jim Holder in Atlanta, Georgia. How is it there? Yeah, uh, the big peach is thirty-four point one on my deck, and clear, and the wind is south blowing. Okay, uh, and and Carrie, you're right alongside of him. I guess you've got a fur. Co- well, we can't talk about fur coats anymore, can we? <laughs> <laughs> Only one. He's talking about fake coats. Carrie, you can well, say ditto. Well, we are ditto in the deep freeze like. here. <laughs> it's a deep freeze. Okay. Yeah. Very good. you got to watch what you say on the radio. You can't say much of anything anymore, it seems like. Uh, let's move on down to Florida. I think now Jerry Frost is not with us tonight. He called in and has a cold or something like that. And so um, we're going to move down to the villages in central Florida where a lot of folks uh, are nearby. Dorothy and Don in their new uh, digs there in uh, the villages. Dorothy and Don, how are you? We're fine. We're doing well, thank you. Uh, you can take this cold with you whenever you feel like doing so, <laughs> but the sooner the better. <laughs> You're yeah. ruining my thoughts about the villages. <laughs> no, no, okay. Dorothy. Now, Chuck. Tell her, tell her what happens in the summertime, how hot it gets. Hmm. Well, right now it's it's 48 degrees, but in the summertime, Dorothy, um, I don't know if your uh, your bathing suit's going to be uh, enough to to keep you uh, cool, but that's about where you're going to get down to. It gets well, quite that high. would be fine with me, Chuck. I can't wait. <laughs> I went out last night from a theater. And as we came out the door, I thought, oh, my God, what did I do by moving to the villages? <laughs> oh, no, over in my place. I'm about uh, five blocks from Dorothy. Um, we did have a little fog this morning. I went out last night and watched the moon. Did everybody watch yeah. the moon last night? Yeah. I watched it on TV. <laughs> Uh, okay, let's go over to Norma Jean. She's in the same area, just about uh, a little bit further west. Norma Jean, how are you tonight? I'm great, but it's four degrees warmer at Jim Holder's house than it was at mine. I'm going to go there. <laughs> but about 30-some degrees warmer than up there where Mike and George and Shay are. That's oh, true. God. George always yeah. tells me to stop 
complaining. There you go. And Colleen, Colleen, how is it where you are? Colleen DeFelice? Yes, I guess it's cold for Florida, but I mean, I miss the snow, but I was complaining that I was so cold and it was in the 40s here, so I can't complain when I listen to the guys up north. (laughs) Well, I guess the warmest of all is Jim Hart there in West Palm Beach. Oh, yes. Yes, Neil, we're, we're beautiful here. And it's only a temporary situation. Well, I want to uh, uh, say that uh, uh, we hope uh, your operation is, was very successful, and and uh, you were out for the last couple of shows, I believe, and uh, you've been in the hospital for about a week, so thanks a lot for being with us tonight. Thank you, Neil. Amen. Okay, Jim, the rest, go ahead and introduce our show. I see we're number one for takeoff, Captain. Uh, But before we do that, would you check your volume control? I can just barely hear you. And then go ahead and let's get flight 399 in the air. Well, let's see if we can hear this. of Leonardo da Vinci and his aeroplane sketches and go right to America's famous aviation brothers, the Wright brothers. Tonight's show is about the playmakers, folks, and the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur. They were the two American aviators, engineers, inventors, and aviation pioneers who are generally credited with inventing, building, and flying the world's first successful airplane. They made the first controlled, sustained flight of a powered, heavier-than-aircraft on December 17, 1903, four miles south of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. The engine used developed approximately 12 horsepower. 
1904 and 1905, the brothers developed their flying machine into the first practical fixed-wing aircraft. Although not the first to build experimental aircraft, the Wright brothers were the first to invent aircraft controls that made fixed-wing-powered flight possible. Here is what the replica of the 12-horsepower engine sounded like on the startup and runoff. Folks, I'm sorry we don't have the sound clip for the Wright Flyer engine. I called Smithsonian, and they didn't want to start it up for us tonight and give us the sound. But every year at Sun and Fun, they have a replica engine of the uh, Wright Flyer engine, and they start it up once a year at the Sun and Fun Air Show, and that's in April, and it's amazing, uh, that engine and uh, how exposed it was, and uh, it, it, it just, uh, and, and it's not that noisy, it is noisy, but uh, uh, it's, uh, it's an amazing engine that uh, carried uh, the uh, first powered flight. So back well, to you, right Dorothy. Sorry about the, right, the sound. That's Okay. The Wright Company concentrated its efforts on protecting the company's patent rights rather than on developing new aircraft or aircraft components, believing that innovations would hurt the company's efforts to obtain royalties from competing manufacturers or patent infringers. Orville Wright, who had purchased 97% of the outstanding company stock in 1914 as he prepared to leave the business world, estimated that the Wright Company built approximately 120 airplanes across all of its different models between 1910 and 1915. Over Wright sold the company, which in 1916 merged with the Glenn L. Martin Company to form the Wright Martin Company. Glenn Hammond Curtis, May 21, 1878, through July 23, 1930, was an American aviation and motorcycle pioneer and the founder of the U.S. aircraft industry. He began his career as a bicycle racer and builder before moving on to motorcycles. As early as 1904, he began to manufacture engines for airships. In 1908, Curtis joined the Aerial Experiment Association, a pioneering research group founded by Alexander Graham Bell at Beanborough, Nova Scotia, to, to build flying machines. Curtis made the first official witness flight in North America, won a race at the world's first international air meet in France, and made the first long-distance flight in the United States. His contributions and designing and building aircraft led to the formation of the Curtis Aeroplane and Motor Company, now part of the Curtis Wright Corporation. His company built aircraft for the U.S. Army and Navy, and during the years leading up to World War I, his experiments with seaplanes led to the advances in naval aviation. Curtis' civil and military aircraft were predominant in the interwar of World War I and World War II eras. The Curtis Wright Corporation 
is an American-based global diversified product manufacturer and service provider for the commercial industry defense and energy markets. Created in 1929 from consolidation of Curtis Aeroplane and Motor Company, founded January 1916 by Glenn Hammond Curtis. Wright Aeronautical, founded by Glenn L. Martin and Orville Wright as Wright Martin, and the various supplier companies by the end of World War II. It was the largest aircraft manufacturer in the United States, supplying whole aircraft in large numbers to the United Air Force, United States Armed Forces. Perhaps the most famous aircraft ever built was the famous P-40 Warhawk, which through December 1944 was, was to have uh, produced and run of 13,738 planes, which served distinction in the air forces of 28 nations during World War II. The Curtis Wright Company also built passenger-carrying C-46, used primarily as a troop aircraft carrier. Donald Wills Douglas, Sr., He was born April 6, 1892, and he passed away February 1, 1981. He was an American aircraft industrialist and engineer. An aircraft pioneer, he designed and built the Douglas Cloudster, though it failed in its intended purpose, being the first to fly nonstop across the United States. It became the first airplane with a payload greater than its own weight. He founded the Douglas Aircraft Company in 1921, and the company later merged with McDonnell Aircraft, which formed McDonnell Douglas Corporation. Under his leadership, the company became one of the leaders of the commercial aircraft industry, engaging in a decades-long struggle for supremacy with arc rival William Boeing, and the company he founded. Boeing, and then Douglas gained the upper hand, particularly with his revolutionary and highly successful Douglas DC-3 airliner and its equally popular World War II military transport version, the C-47, at the start of the war. And his airplanes made up 80% of all commercial aircraft in service. However, he lagged behind in the jet age, and he was overtaken and surpassed by Boeing. He retired in 1957. One of the greatest aircraft of all time was the Douglas DC-3, of which more than 16,000 DC-3s and military version C-47s were built in 50-plus variants. More than 300 are still flying today. The DC-3 was born into the still nascent commercial air travel industry and traveling by air, which much riskier and arduous before the DC-3 came along. Douglas also built the famous World War II aircraft, Douglas A-12 Avenger, Douglas A-4 Skyhawk, to name a few. 
commercial aircraft included the DC-3, DC-4, DC-6, DC-7, DC-8, DC-9, DC-10, and many of which were in the Eastern Airlines fleet of aircraft. Jim? Thank you. William Boyne, a wealthy Seattle timber man and aviation enthusiast, learned to fly from Glenn Elmark and in 1915 purchased one of the first Martin seaplanes. When an accident damaged the airplane, Boeing decided to repair it himself. He soon became convinced that a whole new plane could be made. He received enthusiastic encouragement from a young construction engineer at the nearby Bremerton Navy Yard, and Pacific's Aerial Products Company was born. In 1916, Billy Bowen established the Pacific Airplane Company, which became the Boeing Airplane Company a year later, and built its first two airplanes, both of them that will float biplanes. In 1926, the company established the Boeing Air Transport Service for mail and package service, Boeing F-38, the United Aircraft and Transport Company, known as United today, and he served as chairman. He was awarded the Daniel Guggenheim Award in 1934. Famous aircraft from the Boeing assembly line were the B-17 Flying Fortress, the B-29 Super Fortress, the Boeing Stearman, which your producer, our producer, Neil Holland, the producer, B-52 Stratoforces. These military planes were just a very small few of the many aircraft that Boeing had produced. And, of course, produced the very popular airliners, operated by the airlines around the world. The Boeing 727, the 737, the 747, the 757, the 767, the 787, and soon the 797. Probably Boeing more than any other was the aircraft bill that the Eastern Airlines turned to for its passenger and freight carrying operations. And as you heard on the breaking news, now comes the newest in the Boeing fleet, the Boeing 777X, the most advanced airliner in the skies. Take it away, Carrie. Glenn L. Martin. In 1914, Martin stated that the airplane would decide the war in Europe, for the old-time war tactics are no more. The generals who realize this quickest and fight first with the flying death will win. Glenn Luther Martin, January 17, 1886 to December 5, 1955 was an early American aviation pioneer. He designed and built his own aircraft and was an active pilot as well as an aviation record holder. He founded an aircraft company in 1912, which through several mergers amalgamated into what is today known as Lockheed Martin. In 1909, Martin learned to fly with a pusher-type biplane he built. He claimed to be the first flyer to take his mother flying and the first to film motion pictures from an airplane. He formed the Glenn L. Miller Company and built the Army's first tractor-type trainer, the first multi-passenger seaplane, developed a pack-type parachute, and participated in early bombing tests. Martin Company built the MB-1, the first two-engine American bomber. After World War II, he built torpedo and dive bombers, flying boats, and the B-10 bomber for which he received the Collier Trophy in 1932. In 1940, he received the Daniel Guggenheim Medal for his China Clipper and B-26 Marauder Bomber. During World War II, he built flying boats and bombers. 
following World War II, his company developed rockets and mil- missiles. In the Eastern Airlines Great Silver Fleet, the Martin 404 was popular in the 1950s and 60s. Martin built the 202, 303, and 404, which was the most popular by many of the airlines. George? Alan Lockheed, uh, whose real name I presume is Lughead, uh, on a Chicago ball field in December of 1910, 21-year-old Alan Haynes Lockheed climbed into a spindly collection of light wood and fabric, cables and glue, bicycle wheels, and a 30-horsepower engine. Many had previously tried to get this Curtis Pusher biplane to gain enough speed to take off. And despite the fact that Lockheed had never piloted an aircraft, he applied his mechanical know-how to tinker with the engine and then offered three-to-one odds to his fellow mechanics that he would be the first to get the plane to fly, but no one took the wager. Anyone betting against Lockheed would have lost. Taking to the air, Lockheed's natural skills at the controls became apparent. He piloted the normally cumbersome Curtis aircraft in a graceful circle and brought it down to a gentle landing to the accolades of his fellow mechanics. Quote, it was partly nerve, partly confidence, and partly damn foolishness, but now I was an aviator, unquote, he said some years later. The Lockheed Corporation was an American aerospace company founded in 1926 that later merged with Martin Marietta, to form Lockheed Martin in 1995. The founder, Alan Lockheed, had earlier founded a similarly named but otherwise unrelated Lughead Aircraft Manufacturing Company, which was operational from 1912 through 1920. In 1926, Alan Lockheed, John Northrop, Kenneth Kay, and Fred Keeler secured funding to form the Lockheed Aircraft Company in Hollywood. This spelling was changed phonetically to prevent mispronunciation. The new company utilized some of the same technology originally developed for the model S1 to design the Vega model. In March of 1928, the company relocated to Burbank, California, and by year's end reported sales exceeding $1 million. From 1926 to 1928, the company produced over 80 aircraft and employed more than 300 workers who, by April of 1929, were building five aircraft per week. In July of 1929, the majority shareholder, Fred Keeler, sold 87% of the Lockheed Aircraft Company to the Detroit Aircraft Corporation. In in August of 1929, Alan Lughead resigned. The first successful construction that was built in any number, there were 141 aircraft, was the Vega first built in 1927, best known for its several first and record-setting flights, including, among others, Amelia Earhart, Wiley Post, and George Hubert Wilkins. In the 1930s, Lockheed spent $139,400, which in today's money is $2.29 million, to develop the Model 10 Electra, a small twin-engine transport. The company sold 40 in the first year of production. Amelia Earhart and a navigator, Fred Noonan, flew it in their failed attempt to circumnavigate the world in 1937. Subsequent designs, the Lockheed Model 12 Electra Jr. and the Lockheed Model 14 Super Electra, expanded their market. Eastern Airlines also flew 
the Model 10 Electra, along with the Lockheed Constellation, the uh, Lockheed L-188 Electra, and the Lockheed 1011 Widebody TriStar. Among the company's military aircraft, who can forget the P-38, the Lockheed U-2, and the SR-71 Blackbird? Shay? Thank you, George. Igor Sikorsky was a Russian-American aviation pioneer in both helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft. His first success came with the S-2, the second aircraft of his design and construction. His fifth airplane, the S-5, won him national recognition, as well as license number 64 from the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale, or FAI. His S-6A received the highest award at the 1912 Moscow Aviation Exhibition. In the fall of that year, the aircraft won for its young designer, builder, and pilot first prize in the military competition at St. Petersburg. After immigrating to the United States from Russia in 1919, Sikorsky founded the Sikorsky Aircraft Corporation in 1923 and developed the first of Pan American Airways ocean-conquering flying boats in the 1930s, the Pan Am Clipper Boats. In 1939, Sikorsky designed and flew the Vought Sikorsky VS-300, the first viable American helicopter, which pioneered the rotor configuration used by most helicopters today. Sikorsky modified the design into the Sikorsky R-4, which became the world's first mass-produced helicopter in 1942. Colleen. Thanks, host. Thanks, host, for part one. Uh, great, uh, uh, great. Uh, information history of the pioneer plane makers and uh, that's uh, our part one of our program tonight and the second part begins now with Colleen would you start us off please could designers of the Airbus A320 have ever thought their aircraft design and construction would hold up to this extreme test of surviving the maneuver a skillful pilot would put it through. Cactus 1549, turn left heading 270. Uh, this is uh, Cactus 1539, hit first, so you're lost to us on both pitches, returning back towards LaGuardia. Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading up uh, 220. 220. Tyler, stop you departure, he's got emergency returning. It's 1529. He uh, bird strike. He lost all engine. He lost the thrust in the engines. He's returning immediately. Cactus 1529. Which engines? He lost thrust in both engines. He said. Got it. Cactus 1529. We can get it for you. Do you want to try to land runway 13? We're unable. We may end up in the Hudson. Joint 2760. Turn left 070. 070. Joint 2760. I can't get 1549. It's going to be left traffic to runway 31. Unable. Okay, what do you need to land? Cactus 1549, runway 4 is available if you want to make left traffic to runway 4. I'm not sure we make any runway. Uh, what's over to our right? Anything in New Jersey? Maybe Teterboro? Okay, yeah, off your right side is Teterboro Airport. Do you want to try to go to Teterboro? Yes. Teterboro, uh... Empire, actually, LaGuardia departure guy, emergency inbound. Hey, guys. Cactus 1529 over the George Washington Bridge wants to go to the airport right now. Wants to go to our airport. Check. Does he need assistance? Uh, yes. He, uh, it was a bird strike. Can I get him in for uh, runway one? Runway one, that's good. Cactus 1529, turn right 280. He can land runway one at Teterboro. We can't do 
Okay, which one way would you like at Teterboro? We're going to be in the I'm sorry, say again, Cactus. All right. Kelly, 2760, contact New York 126.8. 2760, Joey 2760. Cactus, uh, Cactus, 1549, radar contact is lost. You also got Newark Airport up at 2 o'clock in about 7 miles. Eagle 54718, turn left bank 210. 210, uh, 2718. Uh, I think he said he was going to the Hudson. Cactus 1529, uh, you saw him. Colleen. CNN reports, 10 years after what came to be known as the miracle on the Hudson, it's still amazing that everyone aboard U.S. Airways Flight 1549 survived. This week marks the 10th anniversary of arguably the most famous emergency landing in modern aviation history. Shortly after pilot Chelsea Sully Sullenberger took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport on January 15, 2009, with 154 passengers and crew, two eight-pound geese flew into each of the plane's twin engines. Suddenly, both engines weren't working, and Sullenberger faced a gut-wrenching decision. He had to choose between trying to reach an airport runway or attempting a daring water landing. As we now know, Sullenberger aimed for the Hudson River, which investigators eventually said was the only choice he could have made that would have saved the plane. Flight 1549 reminds us that we're not the only creatures that travel in the sky. Mike? It raised awareness about aircraft bird strikes and prompted the National Transportation Safety Board investigators to warn airports, quote, to take action to mitigate wildlife hazards before the dangerous event occurs, end quote. Despite the heightened concern, stats tracking uh, annual U.S. bird strikes show that they have skyrocketed. From 1990 to 2016, the annual number of reported bird strikes in the U.S. increased from 1,850 to 13,408, according to the Federal Aviation Administration. That's up more than 700% globally. From 2008 to 2015, the International Aviation uh, Civil Aviation Authority said nearly 98,000 bird strikes were reported in 105 nations. The estimated cost of all the aviation bird strikes, according to the European Space Agency, is more than one million a year. If you need more evidence that birds crash into airplanes, it's evidently relatively common part of the modern air travel. Just as we look at the headlines, modern headlines. Just last Friday. United Airlines flight from Spokane to Denver diverted to Seattle-Tacoma because of a bird strike. In April of 2016, a bird slammed into an Airbus 321 carrying 174 passengers, taking off from Las Vegas, cracking its windshield. Even the vice president of the United States was, has been affected. No one was hurt in uh, 2012, when birds hit the right side of Air Force Two with Vice President Joe Biden aboard as he approached California's Santa Barbara Municipal Airport. George? When airplanes and birds collide, you often get snarge. Scientists at the Smithsonian Institution came up with this term to describe the tissue and gooey remains that are still attached to aircraft 
after a collision with our feathered friends, said the bird strike expert, Mike Begier, who took part in the investigation of Flight 1549. In 2016, Begier, who is the national coordinator of the Airport Wildlife Hazards Program at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, told CNN that he'll never forget looking closely at the blades of Flight 1549's engines. In addition to snarge, quote, you could see the feathered remains, unquote, Begier said. The engine was hot at the time of impact, quote, so a lot of this stuff was sort of baked, if you will. It had gotten hard, unquote. Begier and his colleagues had been fearing something like this since 1995, when a large U.S. Air Force surveillance jet hit birds on takeoff, killing all 24 crew members on board. That crash made experts worry that a similar disaster could happen to a large civilian airplane. The big lesson learned from Flight 1549, Begier said, was, quote, it can happen. It was no longer an abstraction. We almost had that catastrophic event with the miracle on the Hudson, but obviously there was a highly skilled crew at the controls on that airplane, that did not, ha and it did not happen. Now, with heightened awareness and better airport management of wildlife, Begier said that another bird strike as terrifying as Flight 1549 is perhaps a little less likely. The rise in bird strikes can be misleading, misleading said uh, Dr. Archie Dickey, director of the Center for Wildlife and Aviation at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. There aren't necessarily that many more strikes occurring, he said. The number of reported bird strikes went up in part because the aviation community is paying more attention. People are reporting these airstrikes more often. Also, bird strikes that resulted in damaged aircraft are decreasing at larger airports, and it's not just birds. Hundreds of strikes are reported involving bats and even reptiles. At New York's JFK airport, hundreds of diamondback terrapin turtles have been known to crawl from Jamaica Bay onto airport property, sometimes even getting onto the runways. Jim? Forced away from airports to take away their habitat, Dickey said in 2016. Wildlife is going to come in for three reasons, for food, for water, or for shelter, he explained. Remove those and you will force birds to go elsewhere. As a final option, some airports, such as New York's LaGuardia and JFK, have resorted to rounding up geese and gassing them to death. Emerging technology may provide other tools. The FAA has spent more than 10 years trying to perfect special radar that detects uh, more uh, birds, uh, and it has struggled to track birds because they're fairly small and experts said the FAA has been improving it. Jet engine manufacturers have tried to design some screens to prevent engine intakes from birds, but that so far, experts say, nothing has worked well enough to be practical due to the airflow and excessive weight issues. At the time of Flight 1549, bird strike avoidance training 
was not whoops, uh, was not included in U.S. Airways ground school curriculum or the simulator syllabus, according to the National Transportation Safety Board. Industry lobby organization Airlines for America said in a 2016 statement that pilots for its members undergo extensive flight training, which includes preventive strategies. Sullenberger's former employer, U.S. Airways, has merged with American Airlines, which said in a statement this week that bird strike preparation for our pilots is an important and standard component of training. Achieving zero bird strikes at airports would be difficult, if not impossible. But the goal would be trying to get as close to zero as possible, said Biger. We can get benchmarks, and that's actually a discussion that's going on in the airport community right now. Experts say focusing on effective wildlife management and pilot training will go a long way toward preventing future incidents like Flight 1549. The outcome of the next bird strike emergency may not be as miraculous. Any comments about uh, bird strikes or the miracle on the Hudson from any of our hosts or listeners? I've got a question for all you pilots. Does anybody think that with some kind of training that uh, 1549 wouldn't have hit those uh, those geese and ingested them? It seems to me they didn't have time to no. make any kind of maneuver. Well, i got to comment on that. I think you're asking about training for the pilots. Uh, when you're taking off and speed, we're going below 10,000 feet, 250 is still very fast, and these birds are very small and even if it's a flock of them, you don't see them until probably too late to do much about it. And I know, I think I've reported on my collision with a buzzard going out of Atlanta to Denver one day, and I didn't know what it was. Uh, it hit nothing. We didn't have any idea, but we saw buzzards go by us on all sides, and we did hit one on the right wing. And I learned tonight that what was all over that wing, I called it blood, guts, and feathers, but now I know it was snarge. And uh, we were covered Schmutz. with stars. The wing was, and I could not believe when we landed at Denver and found out we'd hit one of them. It made a dent in one of the right wing slats, and wow. uh, it made no difference in flying of the airplane. It flew the same. <clears throat> All the passengers sitting on the right hand side, nobody managed to send a message up that there was blood and guts and feathers all over the wing, but there was. Yeah, Neil, uh, this is George. Um, I have I hit one. Uh, on a flight from uh, Montreal, we were supposed to be going to Pittsburgh in a uh, 737-200, and we ingested it into the number two engine. And the engine just sputtered for a moment but kept running. But I have to tell you, the the smell, it was like, it was terrible. I mean, the feathers all cooked and everything. We we wound up uh, diverting to, uh, we just shot off the pack on that engine. The engine kept running. But we diverted to uh, Syracuse, where it took the mechanics probably close to an hour to clean everything out of the engine. 
and then we continued on to Pittsburgh. But uh, the smell was the worst thing of, of the whole the whole uh, bird strike, you know. Yeah, I recall after Eastern, uh, I took a job in Eastern Maryland with a little airline called Maryland Air. I've told this story before on the radio show. But since we're talking about bird strikes, and uh, it was in a, a little Piper Lance, a six-seated aircraft, single engine. And on a beautiful Sunday morning, I had a passenger that wanted to go to Dulles from Eastern Maryland and got in the airplane, and uh, you could see forever. It was just a beautiful su- Sunday morning. And the flight was real nice, and we were over the Chesapeake Bay. And this is the honest-to-goodness truth. The guy asked me, have you ever hit a bird? And no sooner had he said that than wham. One hit right in the center of the windshield of that uh, Piper Lance aircraft. Uh, The windshield on that airplane is in two parts. My little brother has got one. He owns one. I fly it every once in a while. But uh, right in the center of that windshield, I don't know how he missed the prop, but uh, the bird hit. And it looked like it was probably about maybe uh, about a three-pound bird, maybe four-pound. And I don't know how in the world the windshield stayed there because I think it was right there at where it was pieced together with the rivets that uh, it was stronger there at that point because had he hit the windshield, it would have shattered and I flew the rest of the way trying to explain about bird strikes to this passenger who saw this bird, I believe, coming at us. And uh, Butler Aviation at uh, Dulles, when I landed, of course, the guy said, uh, you need some servicing? I said, yeah, would you take care of the fellow that's on the windshield? And <laughs> he, his guts were all over that windshield. So that's my bird strike story. And, you know, uh, it was plane, but it was a big bird. <laughs> we got yeah, uh, trying to avoid here. birds. <clears throat> Excuse me, this mic here. Trying to avoid birds on the takeoff or landing and uh, and in and climbouts and all that stuff is is pretty difficult, as we all as aviators know. Uh, I hit a uh, big blackbird uh, right on the takeoff roll going out of Stansted, England, one afternoon. And it hit right on the windshield wiper post on the 727. And it was gawk all over the windshield, as we well know. And it, uh, I was concerned that something might have went into the number two engine, but there was no problems with it. But we had to uh, <clears throat> had to look at that, that gawk on the windshield that froze on there for six and a half hours till we go and descended into Newark. And then, uh, it, fortunately, it was raining. And we descended in the rain, so it washed a lot of that away before we before we ended up touching down. Interesting deal, though. One of many strikes that I had. Well, I got another one, Dave. Yeah, I got another one when I was with ATA, and we went out of Aviana in northern Italy going to Frankfurt. And going through about uh, seven or 8,000 feet, we smell this horrible smell come on, and we, what in the world's going on? It would gag a maggot. It was just terrible, burning, older. And the uh, second officer looks up and said the right pack was overheating. So we turned off the right pack, and by this time the flight it came, it threw the 
store. I said, what in the world is this thing on fire? I mean, we people back there getting ready to throw up. It's terrible. And we said, well, we don't know, but we think we took a bird into the inlet for the right pack on the bottom of the airplane, and that's exactly what happened. And he went in through there, or she went in through there, and it burnt that bird up. And we had to level off at 25000 As you know, you can't go above 25000 with one pack. And uh, we smelled that thing all the way to Frankfurt. And I'm not kidding you. I think everybody's about ready to get a burp bag by the time we got to get stuck to high so heaven. Worse scenario than mine. <laughs> yeah, but we didn't go through a rain to Washington either. <laughs> hey, uh, Neil and Jim, I, I have a question for you. Do you recall at Eastern we had a procedure it, when you – taxied into position and held on the runway, if there were seagulls on the runway, that you would turn on the radar, and supposedly the, the, the seagulls had <laughs> the ability to detect the radar, and they would get out of the way. Do you, do you recall that? I don't recall that, but there's nothing wrong with it. You might as well, well try it. <laughs> George, this is a funny, since you mentioned that, uh, I was a number two for departure in Pan Am at uh, Kennedy Airport. Uh, was in a 707, I guess it was, and he had taxied out number one and ready for departure, and I was right behind him, and a seagull landed on the wing of the airplane, <laughs> and one of the guys in the in the line waiting for departure saw that as long as, as well as we did, and I didn't say anything. I didn't have a smart remark, but the guy behind me, wherever he was, said, Hey, you just took on another passenger, Pan Am. <laughs> and the, guy, the captain said, uh, we took on what? He said, you got a bird on your wing. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and they didn't say anything else. But when they pushed the power up, <laughs> that bird knew he wasn't going to London or wherever Pan Am was going. <laughs> Neil, since you mentioned JFK, would you mind one bird strike story from the ground's perspective? Absolutely. Shay, go ahead. Many years ago, I worked for Port Authority for uh, JFK Operations uh, the Unit, and uh, one night, myself and the person that I was working with, we had a airport car out on the service road next to the Bay Runway, uh, you know, 13 right, 31 uh, left, and uh, they were departing uh, towards Manhattan. You know, we were just watching the sunset over Manhattan as with the aircraft departing into it, and a TWA 747. It was Athens bound. Uh, took off. It was it was a summer evening. He ran pretty long because he had a lot of fuel and passengers aboard. And about 400 feet off the deck, we saw a just a burst of black smoke from his number two engine. Uh, and he had taken multiple, probably laughing gulls because they were our major problem at Kennedy. And uh, he climbed out very slowly, went out over the uh, went out over the ocean, dumped quite a bit of fuel, came back and uh, and landed safely. But it was dramatic to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Neil, I did, uh, this didn't happen to me, but it's a funny story if we got time for it. I can tell it, sure. give you the quick version. Uh, what's that island out in the Pacific that's got those big bird gumbos or something like that? Goonie birds. Goonie birds. Goonie birds. Goonie birds, right. Goonie birds. Well, a friend in the Air Guard uh, was flying in the county. Matter of fact, he got hired at Easton, uh, two classes behind me, but he decided not to come. And uh, but he was flying an F-86. Now how they do the flying 86s? There are something about them or something. And uh, that's a Sabre line, you know, the wing single engine, single pilot jet. 
and they were all over the place, these guinea birds. And he said every time he went out to fly, they were there about a week, and they'd go out and fly every other day or so. They things all over the place. they get on your wings, and you'd have to throw rocks at them or something when you attack them out and get them off your airplane, you know. And and they do everything. And finally, he had one that went all the way down the parallel, made the turn, came down active, and that bird, guinea bird was sitting over there on his right wing with his claws up over the leading edge, and that model F-86 didn't have leading edge flaps or anything. It was just a smooth leading edge. And he said, okay, he said to himself, he said, okay, buddy, we're going to see just how bad you want to hold on to that wing. So he spooled that thing up and released the brakes, and they started down the runway, and he said, oh, birds are sitting over there just looking straight ahead. You know, and faster they got, they started leaning back, and he said they hit about 80. The bird had leaned back, and his head was almost sticking straight up. And right about 110, he said the bird looked over at him like he got me and <laughs> went down to Walmart. Now, that guy's a good storyteller, but I don't know how true it was. But I've, had, I've told that story at Eastern, and I've had people tell it, heard about it and tell them that it was me flying the airplane. Now, I wasn't flying the airplane. It's what a guy told me. But it's such a good story, I think I'm going to start saying that was me flying the airplane. That's he said, good. right That's before it left, it looked over at him like he got me. There he went, all the way to the trailer. As long as you've been on the radio show with us, I haven't heard that story before, so that was good. Well, I assume it's a true story. I can tell you some other stories that guy told me um, <laughs> flying F-86 in combat, so I don't believe some of those either, but it makes a good story even if it's not true. Uh, well, good discussion, guys. Lots uh the uh, what'd you think about the clip that I played? It was pretty much the same time. I cut a little bit, edited a little bit, maybe a couple of seconds out of that. But uh, what'd you think about uh, transmission? I think the first one was the first officer, and the second one, uh, yeah, uh, especially the one that said the Hudson was uh, Sully. All right. Well, you didn't have much the time. Only, the, only, the only thing that I'll add is how many times do you know in January, in the middle of the winter, do you get a day where there's no wind and therefore no waves in the Hudson River or no chop in the Hudson yeah. River? I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. one, probably one in 500 days. So you had a lot mm-hmm. going for him. And look at all the availability of boat traffic to help the passengers on the wing. You know, get yeah. off the airplane, and uh, it, it it was a good a good choice. Of course, I think that was his only choice. The only choice. He was. Yeah. Only choice. Well, it's like he yeah. said, he wouldn't want to reenact it again. And as Bill Malone would say, down to the compass and the clock. Yeah. In the movie, yeah. was, uh, first hey, Chuck. Yeah, Chuck, go ahead. Yeah, he was on television one time and describing everything. And one of the things that he said, he probably drew upon his background as a student um, pilot uh, coming up through the the flying ranks, so to speak, when he learned to fly sailplanes. He said that he could could draw on that uh, information that he had back in the younger days about bringing that plane around and the – type of uh, landing that he made. I guess you pilots can figure out the, the, the forward speed and the 
how much it drops at the same time and how much uh, air uh, speed he had as opposed to how fast he was going. But uh, it seemed like when he was talking about it, that was one of the things that was going through his mind is the same thing that he had about flying sailplanes. Well, don't forget last week we had the uh, the airplane that uh, didn't have enough fuel and all two engines, well, all the two engines on the Boeing 767 landed at an abandoned airport that uh, was having a party there on an abandoned airport. And, and, Air Canada. Uh, yeah, Air yeah. Canada. Thank you, Shay. Yeah. And, uh, but had they not known about that, of course, that could have been a real disaster. Whereas it turned out, I think everyone survived on that airplane. Yeah. That's well, I've question. got to you know, go ahead before when you, we get. When you fly a large airplane like that, do somewhere along in your training, do they give you the information that this, how this plane is, if it lost its engines, how much uh, well, forward speed you're going to get as opposed to how much you're going to drop? Well, no. I think most people that check out an airplane have got the glide ratios. They they pretty much know what the glide ratios are. We even had one of our pilots, I think it was Frank Cheek, correct me if I'm wrong, Jim Holder, that even had a little flight computer that he developed uh, that told the uh, co-pilot because he was smart enough to put the computer together, but it told the co-pilot who was sitting over there dumb and happy and uh, uh, how to pull the power back to make a glide that was economical, an economical glide, the best economical glide. But uh, no, you you don't have time to think about things like that, in my opinion. I don't know about you and Jim no. uh, and uh, Mike and uh, George feel about that, but uh, you have to think fast, especially so, if so, you're low. All kind of rote is what it is. It just rote. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it didn't get a lot of attention, but a 757 had a fuel leak in one of the engines, and they uh, they were going toward uh, the islands, uh, over the Canary Islands, and beyond there, and this was at night. And they realized too soon that the cross-feeding, they were fueled to an engine that was leaking fuel. And they basically huh. ran out of gas and did oh, stick yeah. it in and made a left turn around at uh, my name. You know, I can't remember names in there, but over there at the, those islands off of Portugal somewhere, was it Azores? And uh, and they mm-hmm. did that at night, a 757. Mm-hmm. And uh, but for some reason, it really never made the news or anything. Matter of fact, the captain was a former Eastern pilot. But they well, got thank into you trouble guys. because they they were they were pumping fuel, cross feeding fuel to the engine that was leaking fuel. And yeah. they tried to blame them for the whole thing because of that, you know. Well, good uh, good information, guys. And I've got one special request from all of you tonight. If you will please join with me in singing, Happy Birthday to you. Happy Birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Dorothy. Happy birthday to you, Dorothy. Thank you, guys. Thank you. That's so nice. How old are you? How old are you? Well, obviously, 
the surprise is on the bus, obviously, too. Now, who's got that on? There we go. <laughs> okay. Well, before we thank go into you. our announcements, thank you. Uh, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies toughness in a descending spiral destruction. The chain reaction and evil hate begetting hate, wars producing more wars must be broken, or we shall be plunged into the dark abyss of annihilation. Man is man because he is free to operate within the framework of his destiny. He is free to deliberate, to make decisions, and to choose between alternatives. He is distinguished from animals by his freedom to do evil or to do good and to walk the high road of beauty or tread the low road of ugly degeneracy. Those two were from Martin Luther King, Jr., born January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia. Martin Luther King was instrumental in the advancement of equal rights and helping to end segregation in America with a focus on nonviolence. He helped to organize a bus boycott by African-Americans in Alabama that lasted over a year and ended in 1956 with the Supreme Court ruling that Alabama's racial segregation laws on buses was unconstitutional. Martin Luther King lived an extraordinary life. At at 33, he was pressing the case of civil rights with President John Kennedy. At 34, he galvanized the nation with his I Have a Dream speech. At 35, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And at 39, 50 years ago, He was assassinated, but he left a legacy of hope and inspiration that continues today. And that's our uh, tribute to Martin Luther King on this Martin Luther King's. That was very nice, Thank you. Be good, Captain. Uh, Dorothy, do you have any announcements? Well, we have a program coming up next week um, that will be on um, January 28th, and that's going to be a tribute to Herb Kelleher uh, on February 4th, the following week. Eastern EAL is going to talk Super Bowl. Uh, We have the Thursday programs at 3 o'clock. This one coming up this week is going to be Eastern Ireland, Old Time Radio, and Neil is going to surprise us with the topic for the day. Uh, we want all of you to enjoy the website. If you have anything that you'd like to add to it, please let us know. We'd be more than happy to consider any of your ideas. Uh, if you think we need to do something or we don't need to do something, please let us know about that, too. Uh, we thank all of you who have supported us through the year and encourage any of you to continue to do so to keep this program going and to keep the legacy of the Eastern Airline on the air. Uh, 
Uh, we thank all of you for joining us, and back to you, Neil. Okay, we had uh, one member requested information. If uh, uh, any of you guys out there knew or have any information or stories or pictures of his grandfather, his grandfather was Captain Edward Munji Boyahan, Boyahan, I guess. Boyahan, Armenian. Boyajan. Say again, Mike, that last name. Boyajan. That's an Armenian name. Boyajan. What was his first it, name, Neil? His name was Edward, Edward. Munji Boyajan. And, I knew uh, him personally. I, I knew him personally my whole life. He was a friend of my dad's, and oh, wow. uh, his, his his son was one of my flight instructors. And I know all three of his daughters. And I don't know which one of his granddaughter grand uh, granddaughters is looking for the information here. But well, they usually they know most of the information on him. <laughs> wow, isn't that great, uh, Mike? His uh, he, he is a new member of our radio. A show website and he goes by the name of blue demon <laughs> blue demon he didn't put his name uh with his request he just put his grandfather's name so if you know any of the family uh and if you know any stories and pictures uh, i guess maybe he's trying to put together a book or, or whatever or do a genealogical research about uh, the background would you get in touch with him? It'd be great. Yeah, he's got a uh, grand uh, grandson that's called Liam. So I don't know, yeah. not sure, but uh, I'll Might have to check him. with uh, with his son because I speak to his Small son. Oil. He's the broker, uh, uh, Dan Boyajan, who's the son of Ed Bo- uh, Mungie Boyajan. He's the uh, he's the broker on the seven twenty seven that I used to fly. That's being sold. Oh wow! Okay, very good. Small world, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it really uh, is. Yeah. It's like uh, Colleen and uh, let's see who was Shay and Colleen or yeah, or, or Freehold, Mike. yeah, uh, from Freehold, New Jersey. Colleen, you still with us? Yeah, must have gone out for dinner, I guess. Well, at any rate, uh, good show tonight, guys, and I thank you very much for thank being you, with Neil. us. Thank you, very We're going good. to put the airplane on the ground so Jim Hart can finish the rest of it. And we have got a surprise, wonderful good night song. We may use it for the 2019 year and see what you think about it before we sign off. Please listen to it. Uh, I want to put the uh, uh, come on in. I don't know what the glide ratio is going to be, Chuck, but we're going to put this airplane on the ground right about now. Captain, as usual, be sure to tune in again next Monday, January 28th, when America's favorite way to fly returns to the cyber waves, and we salute a modern-day aviation pioneer who passed away this past week, Herb Kelleher of Southwest Airlines. That's our show for tonight, folks. With this, we sign off by playing Jimmy Durante's salute to Mr. and Mrs. Calabash 
wherever you are. Mr. Producer, if you will. Good night, good night, good night. It's time to say good night. Good night, good night, good night. What more is there to say? Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. 